कफस उदास है यारों सबास कुछ तो कहो Welcome to the South Asian Studies at Stanford podcast, also known as the SASPod. I am Lalita Duperon, Associate Director in the Center for South Asia. All our podcasts and information about the center are available at southasia.stanford.edu. We are joined today by Nirvikar Jassel, postdoctoral fellow at the King Center on Global Development at Stanford. His research focuses on gender, sexual violence, ethnic conflict and hate crime, and policing with a regional focus on South Asia. Today, we will be talking about policing in India, particularly through the lens of gender. Nirvikar, thank you so much for joining me on the SASPOD. How are you? Thank you so much for having me. It's such a pleasure to be here. I'm doing very well, actually. Uh, how about you? Yeah, I'm doing great. Thank you. I'm excited for the conversation we're going to have. So uh, I'd like to jump straight into it. Can you tell us a bit more about your research and also what you will be focusing on while at Stanford? Certainly. Thank you. Well, I joined Stanford a few months ago, and it's um, the research that I'm carrying, carrying on here is sort of an extension of my graduate work at Berkeley, where I was examining um, the dynamics associated with policing in India, and specifically um, uh, women's access to justice. And my job market paper, which was recently published, probes the efficacy of something called all women police stations in North India. These are police stations run by women police officers for female victims of crime. The idea being that um, female victims of crime will feel more comfortable, for example, talking about sexual assault, to other uh, in-group officers, administrators, if you will. And um, women police officers staffing those institutions will be empowered as well. So theoretically, the idea behind these institutions was that male police officers can often be biased towards female victims or to sexual assault more generally. Mm -hmm. Indian government decided, are there certain mechanisms we can create to mitigate these biases and create a sort of a space removed from patriarchy. Mm -hmm. And so these institutions were set up, these group specific institutions. And my goal was sort of to examine the efficacy of these institutions vis-a-vis -vis, uh, a number of outcomes. These government policies that you, uh, that you mentioned, can I assume that these are kind of post 20, uh, 2012, quote unquote, near Bahia? Um, policies? Actually, um, so since actually 2009, there's been an emerging push to set up quotas for women in the police, a 33% quota um, oh. for incoming recruits. And there's also been the establishment of women's police stations since the early 1990s in India. So beginning in the uh, mid-1980s in Brazil, in Sao Paulo, there was an establishment in Latin America of all women police stations. And in 1992, in the southern state of Tamil Nadu, uh, leader of that state, Jay Jayalalitha, mm -hmm. decided, you know what, that's an interesting idea. We should set that up in our state as well. And so these women's police stations were set up in 1992 all across Tamil Nadu. And from the 1990s to, to the 2000s, 
these institutions were sort of expanded to the rest of India, usually in the district headquarters of, of states that decided to adopt the policy. And so actually there have been a lot of reforms that have been pushed forward to make the police more representative of women and minority groups way before Nirbhaya, in fact. But it's an open question about whether these reforms really had a positive impact because um, in general, there's been a sort of reluctance towards instituting large scale reform of policing in India. In India, policing is a state jurisdiction that was, mm -hmm. was um, decided when India was formed in 1947 uh, and with its constitution, where that policing would be a state's jurisdiction. And so you can't really do a massive federal overhaul of policing because you need to take all the state's um, you know, positions into account. So the policing system that is in place in India is exactly, almost exactly the same that was implemented in 1861 by the British. Hmm. And so the same police system has been in operation for you know, all these years, but the Indian federal, uh, Indian federal and local governments have been very open towards implementing reforms of making the police forces more representative of women and minority groups, not broad-based structural reform about like not being able to transfer police officers on a whim or you know, <laughs> pol political interference in you know, how law enforcement is run. So those things are, there's been a lot of pushback towards changing. But things like representation and creating segregated police stations for women and minority groups, uh, other kinds of reforms like women's helplines and special cells, all of these have been sort of adopted by many state governments with, with quite a bit of vim, actually. And so um, I was sort of curious about to what extent these institutions and many of these reforms were effective in their goal. So long story short, to answer your question, after Nirbhaya, of course, there was a sort of new push towards uh, trying to make policing more accommodating for, or uh, police the police force more accommodating for victims of violence, hate crime, sexual assault. Some of the policies that were implemented were after Nirbhaya was that now a woman police officer would have to be present for the recording of a female victim's testimony at the police station. And there were other policies enacted as well. But the institutions that I study uh, predate Nirbhaya. Okay. And now, <laughs> uh, the way you talk about representation makes me feel that maybe you feel it's slightly tokenist. Would that be fair? Well, not exactly. I mean, there is a great deal of emphasis in social science literature about the positive impacts of representation. And in the US policing literature, for example, there's a wealth of literature that shows that citizens perceive women police officers to be more compassionate, uh, more trustworthy, more honest. And many of these sort of ideas have been translated to other settings from Brazil to India to Liberia. The assumption being that just by having a descriptively more representative police bureaucracy, it will really change people's attitudes and make citizens more comfortable in registering crime and so mm. on. And so my, the, a subtext of my research is to show, or the findings, the subtext of some of the findings is that many of these assumptions may be a bit of an overestimation 
about the positive impacts of representation. Now, I do find, as I'm sure we'll talk about later, some encouraging effects of representation. But the encouraging effects that I see are in terms of the changes within the police bureaucracy itself. So having more women within the police force, I find, changes the dynamics within the bureaucracy. Women leaders are very considerate toward in-group deputies, making sure that they get a variety of cases and so on and so forth. But in terms of a descriptively altered police force simply being more representative of society and that encouraging victims of say sexual assault to come forward uh, a greater deal or changing access to services or changing outcomes vis-a-vis -vis the criminal justice system more broadly, I do not find uh, strong evidence to support the sort of somewhat optimistic assumptions that many policymakers and a lot of social science research from the US have, um, have found. So the argument that that's um, having police stations that are staffed, segregated or with staff, with people from a certain marginalized group will have better outcomes for the victims of crime from that same marginalized group doesn't really hold then? Is that what you're saying? Yes, I, that is some, the, the main gist of my paper. Okay. And the idea being that the establishment of women's police stations, and I looked very carefully at the establishment of these institutions in, in Haryana state, mm -hmm. and descriptively in others like Bihar and Uttar Pradesh. But in Haryana state, I find, I sort of try to estimate the causal effect of these women's police stations because they were all opened up on exactly the same day, on August 20th, 2015. And so I'm able to test with very fine-grained data before and after the imp implementation of the policy, what was the effect for victims of sexual assault? What was the effect for uh, women police officers working in the bureaucracy? And essentially what I find is that the day after these women's police stations were established, the very day after, what ended up happening is that police officers at standard police stations now began deflecting cases such that when victims of sexual assault, for example, went to a standard police station around their neighborhood or where the incident happened and went to report the crime, the police officers at those quote unquote zonal police stations began telling the victims of assault, hey, why don't you go to the police station 20 kilometers mm. um, you know, in the center of town? And so the assumption behind the creation of these institutions was that they would expand access to services for female victims of crime in particular by enlarging rather than narrowing the um, points at which uh, they could be accommodated by police officers. But what I find is that they in, in fact narrowed it, the establishment of these institutions narrowed the access points because if women police, uh, if female victims of crime were being deflected, were being forwarded to other police stations, then by definition, they were not being able to get services at the institution that was closer to their home or location. Right. And women victims of crime, if you look at survey data, going to the police already is such a rare event. I mean, there's people don't go to the police stations in India, you know, for fun. It's already such a, it's already such a rare event. But now if you're being told to go somewhere else for something that you were fairly likely to be reluctant about, having come forward anyway, um, I find that that may have some unintended consequences in terms of travel costs, in terms of 
perhaps quality of roads of you know having to go to this extra distance about getting permission from your household whatever it is yeah of course so, so that is the that is the uh, supply side I, I beg your pardon. That's the demand side. So mm-hmm. police stations can have a can affect both the supply and the demand side. So from the demand side, it could potentially change the way citizens access justice. And I find that it is kind of changing the way citizens access justice. It's it's narrowing the access points. And uh, in terms of the supply side, the establishment of these institutions decreases the responsibilities for women police officers in the force. Why does this happen? Well, it's fairly straightforward and easy to explain. <laughs> uh, the women police officers in the Indian police force were a fairly, uh, it, only about 9% of women uh, are in the police force in India, in, in Haryana in particular. Hang and on, so, 9% of women, 9% of the police force is female? Exactly. Yeah, okay. And so what, what ended up happening is that women police officers prior to the establishment of women's police stations, well, they got, they worked in standard police stations and they ha- may have gotten a variety of cases. Um, it is true that in the Indian police system, usually women police officers got a lot of quote unquote gendered cases that have a gendered subtext. I can talk about what gendered cases means in India. It's usually in India, in India you have an Indian penal code and there are various laws that invoke the word woman, girl, marriage gender and so on. In any event, so women police officers would usually be assigned these quote unquote gendered cases. But as just a factor of working in standard police stations, women police officers invariably got a variety of cases. So sometimes they got dowry harassment and sexual harassment cases, but women police officers often got cases like kidnapping or counterfeiting, hit and runs, property disputes. What ended up happening after the establishment of women's police stations is that there was no corresponding increase in the percentage of women police officers working in the force. The women police stations were established and the government said, okay, now we've created these buildings, so we should probably have someone to staff them. And all the women police officers working in standard police stations were now overnight moved to staff these new buildings. Mm -hmm. At those new buildings, they could only work on crimes on an official list associated with the establishment of women's police stations. Mm. And that list only had a select category of crimes, which included rape, gang rape, dowry harassment, acid attacks, female feticide, um, uh, domestic violence, and so on. But not crimes like murder, armed robbery, kidnapping, and so on. Mm. So... Okay, there's so much to talk about here. Um, Let me see, I just wanna talk about the quotas. I just wanna go into the numbers before we get uh, into the the gendered cases because that's obviously massively interesting. Um, You said earlier, correct me if I'm wrong, there's a 30 or 33% gender quota in the police, which is clearly not met yet in, in Haryana. But what about these quotas? Are they constitutionally mandated um, as many of the other quotas we know about in India are? So that's very interesting. Actually, they're not. So as you know, in India, there are quotas for marginalized groups, the scheduled caste, scheduled tribes, Correct. and uh, later on for other backward castes as well. Mm-hmm. And so these quotas are in place for minority groups for accessing public agencies. And the police happens to be a public agency. But, 
and there are quotas for women in like village councils. A lot of research has been done on representation for women in uh, in politics, for example, uh, in development economics and political science. Mm -hmm. uh, but these quotas that I'm and those are constitutionally mandated. These quotas for women in the police are not constitutionally mandated. They were established around uh, after 2009, most of them. So beginning in 2009, in 2009, a, a document was sent to the state governments by the federal government, essentially encouraging states, hey, states, could you do things to improve the representation of women and minorities in your police forces? Why don't you choose from this selection of various policies such as women's cells, police stations, quotas? And so the federal government was particularly keen in encouraging states to adopt the 33% quota. But because it's not constitutionally mandated and because policing is a state subject, the various states um, could decide to adopt the 33% gender quota for incoming hires or not. And it's very interesting that most states were more enthusiastic about setting up women's police stations rather than the quotas. And this is something that I discuss a little bit more in a forthcoming piece in the Journal of Asian Studies in which I sort of flesh out some of the qualitative research that I carried out rather than the sort of the quantitative uh, mm -hmm. work. But in that, in, in the Journal of Asian Studies, I essentially sort of uh, make the case that the reason why state governments were particularly keen on all women police stations is because they didn't really have to change hiring practices. They didn't have to do anything. They just needed to create a set, a new building Right. Take the women police officers that already worked in their in their state and move them there. So there was a transferring of state capacity. So for state governments, they were like, sure, let's do that. But there was more reluctance about setting up the 33% gender quota. Regardless, mm -hmm. by the by often Nirbhaya to answer your initial question, and um, uh, and after additional cajoling by the federal government, essentially <laughs> many of the states almost most of them now have adopted the 33% gender quota for incoming police recruits. Um, but the thing about that is that one, men, this, the signing off on this 33% quota is, it's, it's really on paper. It's, it's not really had a very substantive effect for the sole reason that the 33% gender quota is unlike quotas set up for village councils for women that you know people like Essa Duflo and others have studied. Unlike those, these for the police is based on uh, attrition. So it depends on how many people have retired or died in the police and so on. So the incoming recruits, 33% of them would be technically oh, for women. That's, that's the first thing. The second thing is that the quotas are usually in place for the very junior ranks of the mm -hmm. constable sub-inspector level. Mm -hmm. Now the constable in the Indian police hierarchy is, is not really an investigator. He or she does not have in sort of formal investigative power and usually serves as support staff. So the 33% gender quota is not going to really change potentially investigations on the ground and so on in the short term, because again, it's largely focused on constables. And the second reason is that because it's based on attrition, it'll take many, many years for the whole police force to see 33% of women in the bureaucracy. Right, and, and I, I'm guessing that 
many of these women will stay at the at the junior level partially because patriarchy but also if they're not if they're if they don't if they're in in their gendered cell so to speak uh then they might also not be able to make the kind of I know breakthrough like perhaps when you have a murder case or whatever that helps you move up the ranks. so I see that force coming from two different angles and there might be many more that's exactly right so that's something that I probe in my uh, research as well in my in my paper which is that the establishment of the women's police stations now force the existing staff of women bureaucrats police for uh, police officers to staff these news institutions which again they could only investigate certain forms of crime gendered crimes which the state quote unquote capital s state um, thought that they would be better suited for because of their sex and so by doing so one question that uh, I, that I, I was curious about, but I could not fully answer, which is what is the long-term impact of assigning gendered cases only to women administrators um, in terms of their professionalization and promotion? Now in the Indian police system, once you become a bureaucrat, once you become a civil servant, by regardless perhaps of even of merit, you will rise through the agency because it's sort of it's you're promoted after a certain number of years in general like you join the let's say you join the indian administrative service you will start in a certain role and you will end likely in a certain role say the secretary of a particular department mm -hmm. um, so there's there's this kind of trajectory and the same thing applies to policing where you will be promoted after a certain number of years the argument that I'm making is that, or not that I'm making, that I would like to investigate a little bit further is that what is the long-term impact of assigning only gendered cases to women bureaucrats? Because yes, they might be promoted, but their professionalization may be compromised. They might not get the murder and kidnapping cases that the men are. Right. Such that even though they might end up being heading a police station one day or being a station house officer or being even the deputy superintendent of police, one day, they may get the deputy superintendent of police of a very, uh, you know, sort of uh, with, with a very sort of nondescript kind of portfolio, whereas the mm. men might not. So, so it's, I, it's a subtle difference that they, yes, they might get promoted, but their professionalization might be compromised. Now, I again, this is this is a uh, this is a, a hypothesis. I have no formal evidence to back this up. The establishment of women's police stations is a fairly in Haryana, where I investigate the short-term impacts of these institutions, it's a, again, it's a very recent intervention and it'll take some more years to find out like what is the long-term implications for sure. Sure, sure. Um, so now we have these buildings <laughs> that are staffed by a junior female police uh, constables and the, the women, the female uh, victims of crime uh, are told to go there. Now imagine uh, many of these women are the victims of sexual crime, and uh, we know statistically that a large proportion of those women will be the victims of crimes at home. And uh, so now they go to this police station, and the assumption presumably is that the, the female police officers will be uh, better able to um, kind of connect with them and understand them and support them and uh, do whatever is necessary. Does that actually happen? 
in your research, in your findings? Thank you. That's, that's something that I have definitely looked at. And what I find is that in terms of the establishment of these institutions, I find null or negative effects on a variety of outcomes. So I'd find that the establishment of these institutions lowers the rate of crime registered at standard police stations because now standard police stations now deflect cases. Mm -hmm. I find that the establishment of these institutions lowers the, ca the cases assigned to police women for the reasons I already outlined. I find that these institutions changes the dynamics uh, between uh, the interactions between administrators and citizens because if now female administrators can only accommodate gendered crimes, they're only engaging with women when they have been victims of say sexual assault rather than when women have been a victim of let's say armed robbery. Mm -hmm. So there's diminished interaction between administrators and in-groups. Four, I find that there's no change vis-a-vis -vis the criminal justice system in terms of more suspects arrested or fewer mm -hmm. cases canceled. And usually in India, gendered cases are canceled because the police bureaucracy may believe the victim is lying or the victim is, is coerced into having second thoughts by family members or the community. So I find those dynamics do not change either. And then finally, the fifth outcome I find, I, I examine with survey data whether the, just descriptively, whether the implementation of these specialized police stations changes people's perceptions of women police officers. And I find that actually in those settings where citizens say they have a women's police station, they seem to have more regressive attitudes about women police officers. So these five outcomes I, I sort of look at in my, my paper. But your question is, does that disease establishment of these institutions enable victims to feel more comfortable talking um, and engaging with in-group uh, administrators. And that is a different story where I, again, I investigate this a little bit more in my qualitative research. I don't have any quantitative measure of this, but when I was doing ethnographic research and visiting these women's police stations, one thing I did find is that victims of crime, even though many of their cases were not being registered by the women police officers, and many of the women police officers had sort of the same bureaucratic incentives as male police officers in terms of making sure crimes were not necessarily registered because once you register a crime, you have to go out and investigate it and you also want to keep crime numbers low at your police station mm -hmm. and so on mm -hmm. and so forth. So many of those dynamics change uh, were the same. But in terms of victims feeling more comfortable talking, I do find some evidence of that in my qualitative research where uh, when I was you know, a sort of fly on the wall in many of these institutions in Haryana and Bihar and Uttar Pradesh, victims would come to the police station, they would walk into the station house officer's room or office and begin talking about how they're being abused and how their, the mother-in-law kicked them out of the house. Mm. And, and you know, the mother-in-law is demanding uh, uh, gold, but she only has silver to give. And I sort of flesh out some of these uh, sort of descriptives in, in my qualitative research is that the victims often felt a little bit more comfortable just speaking at these women's police stations um, than they likely did at standard police stations, mm -hmm. especially in terms of describing, you know, how the sexual assault was carried out, oftentimes by the husband. Right. Um, in, in a way, the, the, the words that were being invoked was, were sort of different from what I was seeing at standard police stations for sure. Mm -hmm. And women police officers were giving victims 
ample time to vent and talk about what was happening to them. But it was not necessarily translating into better access to justice. It was in the, my qualitative research show, suggests that police officers, by the way, are not acting with any malign intent. They, they, they sincerely believe that by registering a crime report, it might put the victim in even more danger, for right. example. It might, you know, uh, um, she might get pressure by her community for having come forward to the police station and might create a huge mess if this court, if this case now goes to the judiciary. So in, in their view, many of these women police officers view, they believe that their role was to enable a victim of violence to vent in front of an authority figure. Right. And that would be sort of uh, qualify as some sort of access to justice, some sort of service. Now it is indeed an informal service. And once again, I wanna reiterate that nobody here is acting with with malign intent. These are just sort of the bureaucratic incentives and gender norms in place that prevent citizens from able to just get services and, and, um, and have you know, um, action taken um, and prevent further abuse. These are just the sort of constraints that prevent them from doing so. But to answer your question, I did find in the women's police stations that victims felt slightly more comfortable being able to talk about what happened to them. Okay, so that's that's a kind of a pastoral care and that's good. Um, but you're saying that there's not necessarily more access to justice. I'm also wondering what that access to justice would look like considering, and I've said this in prior podcasts and I'll, I'm happy to say this in every single podcast I do, marital rape is not a crime in India. That's exactly right. Marital rape is not a crime in India. And it's something that I have in my own very small way written about with my uh, advisor and mentor Pradeep Chibber. Uh, he and I, when the, when the Indian Penal Code section 377, which uh, previously banned homosexual activity, quote unquote, unnatural sex, right. also, which was also referred to as sodomy or, or anal sex, when that was ejected from the statutes a few years ago, um, it was sort of hailed as a victory for the homosexual community, as it should be, because it was an archaic and regressive law. Um, it was actually it has a very interesting history from the British time period. Um, right. The British had established this um, silly law uh, based on <laughs> based on something called the Buggery Act of, of, mm -hmm. of the 19th century. In any event, so this archaic law was implemented and only recently ejected from the statutes. But when I was looking at my data, my advisor and I found a, a very puzzling, um, we, had a, we saw something that was very puzzling, which was that most of the victims who were invoking this particular act at police stations, section 377, were not men, but were married women. And when you look at the data and the information about the crime reports, you find that the reason why that was so is because women in general have very, fairly few tools with which that they can access justice. And one of them happens to be Indian Penal Code Section 498A, but that is sort of invoked usually in the context of dowry harassment. Mm -hmm. And it's kind of a frivolous sort of crime by the criminal justice system. And I can talk a little bit about why that is a little bit later, but essentially, Section 377 was ejected from the statutes, but when you look at the data, you find married women are invoking the law. 
Why are they doing so? Well, because marital rape is not a crime. So when they went to the police station and said, police officer, please register this crime. I've been raped by my husband. The police officer could say, well, I just can't do anything about it because there's no law against that. This is sort of a family matter. You should you know, deal with it with your family. Mm-hmm. But later on, if cajoled or if, um, you know, if, if the victim had an opportunity to explain what happened, the police officer may invoke section 377, which is anal sex, and get the crime registered in that way. So women had to use these circuitous routes to get crime reports registered. But when an unintended consequence of removing section 377 from the statutes without implementing a law on marital rape is that female victims of violence, especially married women, would have one less tool with which to access. I had never heard that. That is so interesting. So then tell us, so we now still have four, is it 495A, the dowry? Uh, harassment, but you're you're saying that that doesn't work either. So that is a very interesting penal code section. So section 498A was implemented in the early 1980s, and there's a lot of very interesting research on a dowry in India. Uh, I recommend um, Oldenburg's book, The Dowry Murders, which is mm-hmm. uh, fleshes this out a little bit more. But essentially, in the 1960s, there was a dowry act implemented, which prevented harassing women for dowry but no police officers ever registered crimes based on that particular act. In the early 1980s, there was sort of a new push towards gender justice and implementing reforms that can um, mitigate violence against women. And one of those was the implementation of something called Indian Penal Code Section 498A, which outlawed, quote, cruelty by a husband or his relatives against a wife. But the way it was interpreted is that it was associated with dowry harassment in particular. However, women victims of violence would use it when they were being, when they were victims of domestic violence, for example, because that was something that it, it, the, the penalties for section 498A were quite serious. Right. So that was something that victims of violence used, even though in the eyes of the criminal justice system, it was associated with dowry harassment. The problem with this is that over time is that police officers began to once again see this as a sort of frivolous um, dispute that is sort of between family members. And many police officers were puzzled as to you know why women are bringing such cases in front of them when they have murders and kidnappings to deal with. So uh, the, the section 498A went to the Supreme Court twice actually. And uh, twice the Supreme Court sort of the first time the Supreme Court said that section 498A was brought forward by disgruntled wives, quote unquote. And another Supreme Court's ruling said that these cases should not be really brought forward to the police directly. Um, they, they should be sort of arbitrated by quote unquote family welfare committees. And so it gave, lent the impression that section 498A was kind of uh, sort of a joke and should not be taken really seriously by the police. And that's something that I found in my qualitative research in in Haryana and and Uttar Pradesh in particular, which is that uh, police officers are often really irritated by women victims of violence in terms of bringing forward um, cases that invoked Section 498A because they thought that, look, a woman has been raped by her husband, but she's been married to him for 10 years. Why is she invoking a law about dowry harassment? She should have brought 
when she just got married. What is this? How can a woman, you know, who's been married for 10 years bring up dowry? That doesn't make any sense. But again, there are so few tools with which women can access justice that they were, they had to use these tools um, to, to get any kind of, to be taken seriously by the criminal justice system. So it's, it's very layered and complicated, but, um, but it sort of makes sense once you think about it, why, you know, just getting a crime report registered is such a challenge. Right. Um, I feel that we've <laughs> gone down a somewhat depressing uh, route uh, and uh, we are uh, pushing towards the end of our time. Uh, so, so, you know, as with all good research, you, you go look for one thing or are interested in one thing and then you find all sorts of unintended uh, consequences or things that you didn't think you were going to find and then you go down that route. But uh, tell me tell me what in your research has been encouraging. Thank you. Well, I, I do want to um, stress that not all of my research has found sort of depressing results. There's... <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> I, I didn't mean I didn't mean to just kind of you know make a big statement about your research. No, no, it's it's actually very funny because my the, a lot of my research and what I've been talking about is, suggests paints a very bleak picture about the implementation of group specific institutions and about the null to negative effects on representation of a variety of outcomes. But um, I mean, I I do want to uh, tell you about some encouraging uh, effects that I have seen. Is yes. that is that even though the representation of women in the police I have found, especially in the format of all women police stations, even though that does not necessarily change victims' access to justice for the better, it does change the dynamics within the bureaucracy in the following way. So I find that women police officers, they may not necessarily feel particularly inclined to register a gender violence complaint because, again, they are bureaucrats like any other and they have incentives to keep crime numbers low and just by mere separating women police officers into group specific institutions without any gender-based training or sensitization training and so it, it may not have the effects policymakers had hoped for even though that's the case women police officers are indeed very uh, supportive of their own deputies within the force and that's something that's i find very interesting in india when you have uh in the police system, heads of police stations are called station house officers. And those station house officers can be shuffled around from one police station to the next with little or no notice um, on a whim. So one, uh, super, the superintendent of police can say that, you know, the station house officer here, I want her to be posted in police station X. And the other, officer, uh, the other station house officer, I want to be posted in police station Y. And so there's this often shuffling around and that is sort of useful because it enables us to sort of test the effect of police stations when they're run, once they're run by women. It gives us a, a large number of institutions to, uh, to choose from to show like what is the effect of having a woman police officer in terms of the cases assigned to female deputies within the force. And something very interesting that I find in my research is that when you have a police station run by a woman police officer, the likelihood that that woman, the head of that police station will assign a female investigator at that police station, a diverse array of cases and more cases as well is significantly high. So the okay. minute, so the, so the day after a woman station house officer takes charge of a police station in 
Faridabad in Haryana, let's say, mm-hmm. is going to assign women, women deputies within the police station more murder cases. And she is going to uh, assign just not just murder cases, but non-gendered cases as well. Right. right. So that I find is particularly encouraging. So representation, it might not change access to justice and it may not necessarily have a huge impact on the demand side but it certainly changes the dynamics within the bureaucracy so representation is a very good thing diversity is is essential but it's it's, it's got to be go ahead yeah sorry go ahead finish your no, sentence I, I, I finished yeah that, that's it <laughs> no i just feel like it has to be i mean there has to it it just it cannot be any other way and i uh, I, but I do understand that some of these uh, more positive influences are long-term, as you alluded to earlier. Also, the uh, kind of change is slow uh, in any case, especially in big bureaucracies. Um, so maybe, I don't know, in a few years, we can have this conversation again, and, and you'll probably be in a very different place then in terms of uh, your findings. Oh, I, I hope so. I mean, I, I would like to return and sort of investigate the long-term impacts of these institutions. I mean, you know, a professor of mine at Berkeley, Ted Miguel, has been going out to the same place in Africa and has been examining the effect of an implement of an intervention that he was associated with in terms of deworming the population mm-hmm. and uh, of children in particular, and has been going back to the same place that he had carried out his, you know, dissertation research uh, every five to 10 years and figuring out what is the long-term impacts of that. And I would like to do something similar because the implementation of these women's police stations is such a, it's such a novel uh, sort of setup. Right. But, and one has so much sort of optimism behind the implementation of such reforms. And it's entirely plausible that the time horizon that with which I'm looking at this is too narrow. It's, it's only a few years and- right. And, you know, historians, for example, look at significantly larger time horizons. So it'll be interesting to see whether, look, over time, the implementation of group specific institutions may indeed change people's attitudes towards women. It may, if women's police stations are assigned all forms of crime rather than just gender cases, maybe that will have an impact as Mm. well. So so there are a lot of things that can be investigated vis-a-vis these reforms. I look forward to reading the articles that you mentioned, and we can uh, we can add them to our website as they as the publication details become known and people can delve deeper into your research. Um, thank you so much for spending some time with us and talking to us about your research. Uh, it feels timely and relevant, and I'm very grateful to you. Such a pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you. I also want to end uh, thanking uh, Soham Shiva for creating and recording the music in the intro and outro to the podcast and Yasmin Diosran for a little bit of post-production editing. We don't have time to do a lot of it, uh, but she does some and, uh, and the podcast is that much better for it. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the SASPOD, the South Asian Studies at Stanford podcast. Find out all about the Stanford Center for South Asia at southasia.stanford.edu and find us on social media. We are on Facebook, Twitter, 
and Instagram. Thank you for joining us, and I hope you can tune in again soon.